thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey, Jello, do you know what the F-22 and F-35 have in common? They're both made by Lockheed Martin? Oh, uh, well, that's true, but I was more thinking of the fact that they're both fifth-generation fighters. Oh, okay. So how about the 15, the 16, and the 18? The F-15, let's see, those are probably all fourth-generation fighters. Boom, nailed it. All right, so what's the difference between fourth-generation and fifth-generation fighters? Well, funny you should ask. That's what we're going to talk about this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This week, we are talking fourth and fifth generation fighters, what they have in common and what they have different. And this will be our very first interview that Sunshine conducted. And Sunshine, welcome back, dude. We haven't seen you in a while. Hey, it's great to be back. I'm excited for this episode and uh, Jello. So let's see, last time we spoke, you were just getting, you just had qualled in the new aircraft. And you hadn't had your, I'm going to call it, maiden voyage to Paris yet. That's true. We haven't been together other than with the wives on December 21st since the Wingman Foundation on the 11th. So people really haven't had a chance to hear from us. But yes, I did my inaugural overseas trip to Paris. And then a couple weeks later, I flew to Japan. And it was, for the most part, pretty uneventful. But I will tell you, being out over the ocean in the middle of the night with yeah. no moon Oof. brought back some scary memories, man. <laughs> well, at least you weren't alone, but you were afraid. <laughs> I wasn't alone. And thankfully, I knew I didn't have to land on the water. But yeah, that was, that was interesting. Coming back from Japan was cool because we launched at night. And for about an hour, we were just watching the sun come up in our face. And that oh, was really neat. Fantastic. Yeah, right nice. up until it did come up and blinded us <laughs> for the next hour or so. But uh, what's new with you? How's work and things at home? You're working from home, so how's that going? No complaints. No commute in San Diego <laughs> is a very nice okay, thing. So right. I'm enjoying it, predominantly helping the, the fleet with integration of the network-enabled weapons. Okay. And uh, we've got some exercises, some big joint exercises coming up. So we're planning for that. And some of the planning is going to take me or back, I should say, to Alaska oh. at the end of January. So I have maybe, uh, what, what, five hours of daylight and like sing, single-digit temps? Six, yeah. yeah. You know, they're going to give you hazardous duty pay? That they, I wish cold. they would. Let's, ju- let's just say they're not a lot of tourists there, so it should be. All no right. lines at the restaurants. Cool. And from our point of view, your weekly Facebook trivia is still getting a lot of attention. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, getting some really good, what I sincerely appreciate are the uh, the backstories. Yes, you can talk about the airframes and nationalities, but what I really like are the little backstories. So, for example, talking about Foo Fighters, and uh, uh, <laughs> someone had mentioned the origin of the actual rock band, too, which there is you pretty go. cool. 
Yeah, well, you just never know what that will bring about in people's minds. That's excellent. All right. Well, let's see. For announcements this week, our friend Matt Wagner over at Eagle Dynamics has created an FA-18 mission for DCS inspired by the events that we chronicled, Sunshine. It was before you were around, but episode 17, the Desert Storm mid-kill. So they have a mission that recreates the scenario that day and even features some of the audio clips. So... Yeah, people may want to go check that out. Nice. Hey, how about Patreon? What's going on there? Oh my gosh, Patreon's been going crazy, partly because of our behind-the-scenes videos that we've Mm -hmm. been putting out that people like. And one of these days, it's been hard to align our schedules, you and me, but it would be good to get you on one of those because I bet you have different perspectives on different things. But thankfully, partly because of those, we have welcomed Patreon division leads Isaac Larson, Mike Downey, Stu Hall, and Peter Lee, and we have a new Patreon strike lead. That's the $25 level. That's Ken Ryan, or Ryan, not sure how it's pronounced. And he gets some gidunk that I sent him in the mail as well. And yeah, we're just really thankful for the support. They help keep the show going, and they get access to exclusive content. It's a win-win. It is a win-win. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Awesome. Hey, so Sunshine, I know you saw this email from Max, but I want to share it with our Uh, listeners, because this was pretty cool. So I'm going to read this, everybody, and We'll come back around. So it says, my name is Max Blasham. I'm the younger son of Chris Basher Blasham. I just listened to your podcast off the recommendation of my roommate and was very happy to listen to episode four and hear the story of my father's ejection. And for those of you who don't know, go back and check out episode four. We talk about Basher's ejection. Unfortunately, he did not survive that episode. And Sunshine, you were on the boat that day. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel very fortunate, continues Max, that the incident was covered in such detail and would like to thank you. I was also touched to hear mention of my brother getting his wings and would like to let you and your listeners know that I, too, am following in my father's footsteps. I am currently in primary flight training in Corpus Christi, Texas, hoping to earn my wings as well. Your podcast is great, and I look forward to listening to more. Thank you again. It means the world to us that my father continues to be remembered 16 years later. That's just a touching note, and so awesome that Max has it in his mind, as does his brother, to follow his father's footsteps instead of shunning them. That's pretty cool. And I'll tell you what, his father wore very big shoes. They've got big shoes to fill, and they'll do a great job of it. He was the consummate professional naval aviator and a great American, and it can obviously tell excuse me, I can obviously tell that his kids are following in their dad's footsteps. For sure. And when Max sent me that, I had a really cool opportunity, didn't even realize it, to send him a picture I had of his dad in our ready room. Actually, it was my stateroom. Stateroom, yeah. And Max said, hey, I'd never seen that one. That's awesome. Thank you. So it puts a lump in my throat here to just talk about this stuff, but it's so cool. So thank you, Max. And for all the listeners, just Take it to heart that this is a profession that is not just selling insurance, not to say anything pejorative about those people, but this really does become a way of life. And it's so deep. And I guess that's why we have this podcast. Indeed. Cool. All right. Well, I think we have time for some questions. Why don't we start with a phone call? This is from Richard. Good morning, Jello and Sunshine. It's Richard from Boston. It's cold here in New England, and that makes me wonder, how does cold weather impact carrier flight operations? I know it impacts my car and my body up here, and I'm wondering if there's an impact to either the ship and or the aircraft that take off from the ship. So love the podcast. Keep up the great work and have a great holiday season and a wonderful new year. Thank you, sir. 
Hey, so thanks for the question, Richard. Now, Sunshine, I never had a chance to operate in super cold weather on a carrier. Did you? I did. We actually at one time had to clear the snow off the flight deck. Really? Yeah. It was so crazy. how does and, that affect things? Well, firstly, we used the F-14 engines <laughs> to clear the flight deck snow, which was very impressive. Not really, because, really? Yeah. We actually did, yeah. Like have them do like a taxi fam well, around just, the flight just deck? Just they taxied, yeah. They taxied <laughs> and cleared out the L.A. So, I mean, uh, hey, you know, work smarter, not okay, harder, right? you bet. So, and L.A. being landing area. Okay, yeah, cool. Sorry, the landing yep. area, absolutely. So uh, many things that are affected by the cold weather, specifically things that are fluid in the aircraft, and anything that needs to be flexible. Okay. So we do have our cold weather ops checklist that we execute, and basically it says, hey, bring the engines online, let them warm up for about two minutes before mm. you touch the hydraulics. So the hydraulic fluid can be an issue. It can uh, basically be too viscous, we'll say, or too thick. Right. Right. And then also the uh, the hydraulics, the actual lines themselves can rupture too. Huh. And so you don't want seals to blow or fluids to exceed pressures and et cetera. Okay, so it just takes some warm-up. Now, I dealt with that being based in Fallon for a number of years, the high desert, 4,000 feet, cold nights, cold mornings, but never on a carrier. So what about the equipment on the carrier with the catapults or resting gear? Did that, from your point of view, require any warm-up or anything? It was transparent dust. Okay. If they had to start things up earlier, we didn't notice it because everyone was ready at launch time. Okay. And the only other thing would be the uh, pedostatic system. So you have to worry about icing up, right? right. So you had to deal with that in Fallon, too. Make sure yep. that your pitot tubes, your static ports aren't covered with ice, which will really ruin your day. Well, and flight in known icing conditions is prohibited in the F-18 anyway. So yeah. generally, we do try to avoid that. All right. Thanks again, Richard. Next up, Jordan McVeigh. We've had questions from him before. He is one of our Patreon division leads and as such gets head of line privileges with his questions. As a follow-up to a question from a previous episode, asks Jordan about world-famous squadrons. How do squadrons get their names in the first place? When a new squadron is created, is it christened right away by its commanders, or does it get known by a name over the years through the pilots and crews that go through it? If a squadron is decommissioned, does its name become available for others to take, or is that taboo? Like call signs, I guess every squadron wants to have the coolest name. So what do you think of that one there, Sunshine? Well, Jordan, thank you for the very detailed question. So firstly, the way squadrons get created is they actually have to, there's a command that's in charge, and that command who's responsible for establishing the unit has to vet it through OPNAV, so Operational Navy. There's, there's actually a procedure for this, and this procedure is codified or captured in a Navy instruction, believe it So this it is not. Navy squadrons we're talking about. This is Navy that's squadrons. Those are my background. About. We've said yeah. that on the show before. Okay. Yeah, and what they'll do is they actually have a, a Naval Aviation Squadron Lineage Program. Well, they have a big database. And Ooh. there's a we don't commission or decommission squadrons, but we commission and decommission ships. So when it comes to squadrons, we actually activate, deactivate, establish, and disestablish. Oh, so then the name goes back into the cupboard, if you will, and it's available for a future squadron? So, well, you, firstly, you're going to establish the squadron. Okay. And then if you want to deactivate it, kind of think of put, like putting it on the injured reserve list. Oh, so, okay. Okay, so you're going to reserve that name, that number in, in history until you need it back again. A good example would be VFA-15. So VFA-15 actually started out as VA-67 on August 68. It was redesignated to VA-15 in June of 69, and it was redesignated VFA-15 in October of 86. So basically the numbers 15, 67, and VFA and VA are all going to be assigned to that same unit. So now while VFA-15 is still around, you can't have another VA-67, for example. Well, and so the FA-18 Hornet FRS in Lemoore, VFA-125, went away a number of years ago. But when the F-35C 
FRS came to Lemoore, guess what? VFA 125 came back. Exactly. So Rough Raiders are... It was deactivated, put it on the injured reserve list, and brought back. Excellent. All right. You got it. Uh, The next question comes from Ken Rian, who's a Patreon strike lead. And he asks, with the Jehemix, or Joint Helmet Mounted Cueing System, and goggles... Is there a concern about neck injuries during ejection? Yeah, we just mentioned uh, Ken. He signed up recently and then sent in a question. Well, so Sunshine, I never flew with the joint helmet. I assume, though, it was a lot like the goggles, and that is, yes, it is a threat to eject with it on. Now, when we wore night vision goggles, we used to actually modify our brief where if you were in a multi-seat aircraft, instead of saying eject, 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 you would say goggles, 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 eject. And the idea was you reached up and swatted them off your head to get that lever off your forehead, which could badly damage your neck in an ejection. And I think there have been some cases of guys ejecting with them, and they usually blow off pretty quick anyway, I think, don't they? Correct, yeah. Sometimes they might bang them in the face, if you will, as they're leaving the aircraft. What about the helmet, though? What was the? Because I never wore the joint helmet. Was that a concern for you guys? I mean, obviously, we're supposed to raise our chin 10 degrees before ejecting, if you can, anyway. Was there anything more than that for you guys with the helmet? No, there wasn't. There's nothing to swat at. You basically just make sure that the visor itself is down and locked. Yeah, and that's so you just don't get a blast of wind in the face. All right. It does bring up a good point. The uh, joint helmet mounted cueing system is available so that you can still see information as you're wrenching your neck around, but at the same time, you don't want to be under G wrenching your neck around, so it's kind right. of a dichotomy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, next question is from Andy. I've heard that across a fleet of aircraft of the same type, this one should be for you, Sunshine, every individual aircraft handles a little differently from the next. For example, one will roll a little quicker than the other. So my question is, does fly-by-wire negate these differences so all fly-by-wire aircraft in a fleet handle identically? Did you notice different characteristics in different Hornets? So with all the accelerometers, let's just say all the sensors and all the computers on board, there is kind of a normalizing, if you will, Mm -hmm. of different airframes when it comes to roll rates, pitch rates, and yaw rates. The one difference I really noticed was the rudder trim. So when you're flying along, just kind of straight and level, and you look at your turn slip indicator, some jets require a little more rudder trim than others. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the actual rolls, uh, pitches, and yaws, they're pretty much the same. What, what is your experience yeah. with Jello? Yeah, I would agree with that. I did find that some aircraft just seemed to be maybe a little more bent, quote-unquote, than others. And whether it was actual structural deformation or just the way the flight controls are mounted, because, you know, when they put the let's say, rudders on or the trailing edge flaps or really any flight control surface, they try to align it. And then you or I, in fact, this was our job, right? Right before we retired was we'd go out and do a check to see how quickly it rolls when you let go of the controls at different airspeeds. And so they would try to put everything in rig, but no two aircraft I ever saw were exactly the same. Although if you were to blindfold me and put me in one, I wouldn't be able to tell you, oh, that's definitely this aircraft. But I did notice over time, in one squadron flying the same 10 aircraft all the time. It did seem to me like some, maybe had some personality or a, a little difference to them. And we call them the same thing. Yeah, this one's got a little more personality right, than the next. Right, yeah. yep. And it could be that these aircraft, especially the older Hornets, they had a lot of experience. And that's a nice way of saying they were old. <laughs> they were very old, yeah. <laughs> so they tend to get a little bent. And yes, they do fly a little differently. And the fly-by-wire does not always negate all of that. All right, let's wrap up with another phone call. Hi guys, it's Jonathan again. My question is, can the advanced IFF systems like the CIT combined interrogator transponder be used without having to activate the radar so that your electronic footprints on the battlefield is smaller? 
All right, great question, Jonathan. The radar and the combined interrogator transponder are not married. You can run one without the other. Is that essentially true from your point of view as well? Absolutely. Obviously, you're not going to get the ranging information sure. you would, but you can get a, a direction of arrival, so you can get an angle off your nose, basically, mm-hmm. where these guys are, but that's it. Right. So, yep, you can run the radar without it, or you can run it without the radar. Excellent. All right. So let's get into the interview. Sunshine, tell us about this. This was your first one. How did this interview come to be? Yeah. So I was actually driving up to China Lake and unroute. I stopped at Edwards Air Force Base and saw a good old buddy of mine from Air Force Test Pilot School, Jeff Skosh Searcy, who you hear from shortly. And this guy, he's uh, got a lot of time in fourth and fifth generation fighters. So we sat down with a drink or two. You may hear some ice rattling around during the interview. And we uh, just had at it. Excellent. Well, let's get to it. If he's the authority, let's give it a listen and we'll pick it back up on the other side. Welcome everybody to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Major Jeff Skosh Searcy. Jeff, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming. Yeah, we're going to talk about the differences between fourth and fifth generation fighters. So, But before we get into the main topic, tell us a little about yourself. So I'm from San Antonio. My grandparents were in the service. They retired uh, and we stayed there at Randolph I ended up staying there my whole life. Grew up with the T-38s flying over my house every day. Cool. So, okay, so you grew up in Texas, and then you went on to, where'd you go to school? Uh, So then I went to the Air Force Academy. The other academy? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I went to the academy, and that was uh, really my first experience with flying. So I was a uh, glider instructor pilot there. Cool. So you graduate from the academy, you picked up pilot. I did. And then from there, uh, what was your main platform? So I went to Strike Eagles, trade out of pilot training. I went to training in Seymour Johnson, North Carolina, and then over to Lake and Heath. Nice. And, uh, Lake and Heath is where? That's in England. You get picked up for Air Force TPS, right? Yep. Uh, test pilot school, and that's where you and I met. Yeah. And then from there, what'd you do? Uh, so then I went down to Eglin Air Force Base, and I was flying Strike Eagles again and C models, so that 15C. Okay, and then when you say combat, so Iraq, Afghanistan, where were you? Afghanistan, and then um, we deployed to uh, AFRICOM as well. Is in Djibouti kind of area? Yeah. Okay, I think we can say that. If not, I'll cut it out. So. <laughs> uh, okay, so then you were down in Eglin, and, which is in Florida, obviously doing operational test or developmental? Uh, so that was developmental test. Oh. At that time, they had just finished the AESA upgrade for the Strike Eagle, so that's the active electronically scanned array radar. Um, so the Strike Eagle had just uh, finished a lot of that testing. Mm. Um, so we were kind of expanding on that, and then we were doing a lot of weapons testing at that same time. Uh, so specifically on the Strike Eagle, we were integrating the AIM-9X um, and SDB-2. Good old small diameter bomb small too, right? Small diameter bomb too, yeah. So those are the main things that we were testing um, at that time. Okay, gotcha. And then from Florida, you came back to Edwards? Yep. I did a a year of school and then came back to Edwards. Um, So then you're back here now. So the F-15 now, since we're going to be talking about different generations of fighters, what generation is that? It's a fourth gen. And depending on who you talk to, some people would even call the Strike Eagle kind of a Gen Mm -hmm. 4.5 aircraft. And we can get into what that means, uh, what differences are. But uh, it's kind of a Gen 4 plus Due to some avionics upgrades? Yeah, mostly or? due to avionics upgrades. Okay, fair um, enough. Mm-hmm. Now, have you flown a fifth-generation fighter? Yeah, so when I came back to uh, Edwards here, I started flying the F-35. Um, we've got all three variants, so the A, the B, and the C model. We do all of the systems testing for all three variants. 
um, which is all a common software. So the airplane doesn't really care systems-wise. Um, so we do all of that testing here. And then we also do kind of the what we call flight sciences, uh, flying qualities, handling qualities, structures, loading. We do all of that testing for the A model as well. So when you say handling qualities, for those that haven't flown, maybe they've driven a car, can you relate it somehow to driving? Yeah, so if you're uh, into like racing or something, you guys here talk about understeer or oversteer, how easy it is to go into your turn or uh, dive straight for the corner and or just track down the highway, kind of how the car is handling in certain uh, situations. It's kind of hard not to use the word handling, isn't it? it? Is. That, you're right. I'm, yeah. The way things corner, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Or more how, I guess, the human interacts with the vehicle in this case, right? Yeah. Cool. Now, are you also back here with the schoolhouse itself, the test pilot school? Yep. So I uh, just came back over and I'm teaching in uh, the test pilot school again, flying F-16s there and then still flying the F-35 over in our test unit. Nice. So basically, you, well, I flew, I'm sure you flew the T-38 in training, right? Yep. And then the F-15, which is a four and a half gen. Yep. The F-16, which is, do you want to say that's a fourth gen? Or? I'd say that's more of a fourth gen. Fourth gen? Okay. Yep. And then the F-35, and yep. that's your fifth gen. So uh, awesome. But let's talk about the different generations, if you will. So when we think of first generation, I tend to think of the uh, the Germans in World War II toward the end of the war. They had the Swallow, the Messerschmitt 262. Yep. All right. So it was fast in a straight line, and fast is very relative, right? Fast compared to the P-51 the Messerschmitt 109, that kind of stuff, the propeller stuff. So it was a big deal for its time, but obviously uh, quickly antiquated. You had the F-80 shooting star, the British Meteor, uh, F-86, and and the MiG-15. So the very old, obviously, aircraft, but they were generally subsonic, or I think actually they all were subsonic. I think they all were. Yeah. Yeah. They um, probably just used machine guns for their air-to-air kills and very limited electronics, maybe uh, artificial horizon Yes. Yeah. I mean, they had radios, obviously. Yeah. But, I mean, you and I at the, at the test spot school, we got to fly the MiG-15. We did. And what did you think of that experience? Yeah, I mean, it was cool to fly. Obviously, you know, a big piece of history, something that we flew against as a service, uh, you know, fighting that aircraft. I, I, it was also unique to see kind of some of the design and uh, the limitations that it had, particularly with the uh, supersonic flight. So... It was neat to experience that, you know, if you get that thing into a dive, because of the design features with the horizontal tail, you may enter into an unrecoverable condition where, you, uh, without slowing down, you lose your elevator control. And so uh, just a you know, unique piece of history uh, to be able to fly that, but also just to see a first-gen jet fighter and uh, compare that to... You know, the Strike Eagle or the Viper. Oh, just, just apples and oranges. Yeah, there's no comparison. Yeah, with the, the MiG-15, I remember they talked about the mock tuck, right? So yeah. when you go transonic, the center of pressure moves on the wing, yeah. and it didn't have the avionics to compensate for that. So all of a sudden, the nose gets real heavy, Yeah. right? So I remember in the dive at, like, let's say 0.93 or something, and you start pulling on that stick to recover from the dive, and it seemingly feels heavier. The nose feels heavier, and that's because the aerodynamics of the plane itself have shifted yeah. And they didn't have any way to compensate for that with the flight controls, so which were just, you know, they didn't have real computers back then. I say it's more bell cranks and pulleys, you know. Yeah. So cool. Okay, so that's your first gen, and then moving on to second gen. Can you give us some examples or characteristics, I guess, of the second gen stuff? So uh, these were kind of the first supersonic fighters. At this point, we kind of figured out design-wise what we needed to do for the uh, the flight controls in order to 
overcome that. And then this kind of starts to bring in uh, some limited systems as well. So uh, we're getting into a little bit of radar and then uh, we're starting to integrate missiles in addition to uh, just the air-to-air machine guns. And believe it or not, they had their first air-to-air, one of the first air-to-air missiles was the AIM-9, wasn't it? It was, uh, I mean, for second gen, that's pretty amazing. Like the Century Series fighters had yeah. the very beginnings, and that was actually developed in China Lake in somebody's garage, believe it or not. So yeah. hip hip hooray for innovation. Very cool. Yeah, um, so some examples of the second gen fighters would be the F 100, as mentioned earlier, so the Century Series fighters, and then the MiG 17, the Fresca. Third generation, I tend to think of, uh, they started to emphasize multi role capability now, so air to air and air to ground. They did increase the avionics, right? Computers are starting to come more online. They're starting to get smaller, so they'll fit in the jets themselves. And they did focus more on, hey, let's get there quickly in a straight line, so more of an interceptor than a dogfighter. So can you think of any good examples of a third-generation fighter? Yeah, so that would be like the F-4 um, for for U.S., and then uh, you're looking at kind of the MiG-21, MiG-23, and again, yeah, you're we, we kind of think the dogfight might be over, kind of, sort of, so we're not necessarily designing in internal guns in the F-4. We're going more towards missiles and uh, not necessarily designing airplanes for turning either. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all about the interceptor, so getting high and getting fast, covering a lot of ground, and then trying to shoot these missiles. And so that's kind of what I, I see as the third gen. Yeah, fair enough. And I, I don't want to quote Top Gun because I'll owe somebody <laughs> some money somewhere. But I remember they talked about in the movie, there's an excerpt where they're in their schoolhouse there in Top Gun, fighter weapons school. And they say, hey, the F-4 had a very bad kill ratio, right? Because it didn't have a gun and they didn't train the guys for in close. Uh, and then we roll into the fourth gen. So the fourth gen, think now of fighters that were designed in the 70s and operated starting in the 80s up until present day. So initial thoughts were, as Scotia had mentioned earlier, hey, let's focus on, for engineering aspects, let's focus on getting there quickly, getting there at a high altitude, so intercepts. Now they're thinking, well, maybe that wasn't the golden ticket, and now we need to focus back on maneuverability. So you're going to see an upcoming episode where we talk about static stability, and there's going to have maneuver, maneuverability is going to be facilitated by a relaxed static margin, and we'll, we'll get into that in a later episode. HOTAS, can you tell the listeners what HOTAS is all about? Yeah, so that is hands-on throttle and stick. And so uh, if you think of your joysticks, we're putting switches on the control stick and on the throttle so that uh, the pilots are not having to take their hands off and push buttons on the screen in front of them or up on the uh, instrument panel. Uh, They're not having to reach down and and move switches on a radar setting or something. Uh, We're able to do that now all with switches. And so the ability for the pilots to react quicker and just focus more on uh, flying, that really enhanced that capability. Excellent. Also, a heads-up display. So it came into effect now. So you're looking at the uh, F-16, for example. Long-range missiles, all-aspect missiles. So think of the AIM-9X where you can shoot someone behind you. And once again, the microprocessors... They're getting smaller, right? They're getting faster, and the memory is greater. So it's going to lead to some upgrades to include, as you had mentioned earlier, AESA, that active electronically scanned array radar. Also, Erst. Did you use Erst at all? Um, no. Okay, so that's going to be the, that's passive tracking. So it's one thing to be able to detect, but when you're sending out an active signal, then you can be inter- uh, detected too, right? So 
passive tracking is a low probability of intercept, and that's going to be in the infrared search and tracker Erst that was introduced in the on the F fourteen as a yeah the Tomcat had it yeah, yeah. exactly had yeah. the Erst, and then we also have it now in the Super Hornet. And Jehimix, do you have any, uh, firstly, what is Jehimix and have, do you have any experience with it? Yeah, so that is the joint helmet-mounted queuing system. And I did fly that in the Strike Eagle when I was operational. And then the F-35 uses a different type of helmet. Uh, but these are a way where uh, within the helmet itself, instead of having to rely on the HUD that is uh, mounted to the aircraft, and then you can only see that information directly out in front of you, now we're able to display an image onto the visor of the helmet. And so now we can look all throughout the entire field of view of the airplane. And now we get this information in our helmet, whether it be your wingman information, everything that's coming over, data links to you, or you can uh, use that to cue different sensors as well. So uh, if you see uh, something on the ground that you want to put the targeting pot on, then you can uh, look down and you can cue that targeting pod uh, straight to the helmet line of sight. So. Which is epic. And for me, this made me money during close air support. Yeah. Right. So we're arcing overhead or circling overhead. And you didn't have to look, like you said, through the front of the plane. You could look to the side and you could designate cue weapon systems. Yeah. Which was pretty epic. So, okay, so that's fourth generation. So examples would be the F-14, the F-15, the F-16, the F-18, the Sukhoi-27, the MiG-29, and the J-10. And then, okay, so Skos, you had mentioned earlier 4.5 gen. Yeah. So tell me a little about that. So as we've been able to upgrade the avionics or the radar or the EW system or whatever it is, and especially as we're able to do things with data links now, the same platform, the F-15, F-16, F-18, now it's the same airframe just with much newer avionics And so you're able to get a lot more sensor information, and then you're able to do that with multiple airplanes. And so from a lethality standpoint, those Mm -hmm. legacy platforms Mm -hmm. have their electronics upgraded to the point where they are uh, much more capable akin to a fifth-gen fighter. Okay, so with the four-and-a-half-gen fighters, you're saying basically the outer mold line or the airframe itself stays the same, the guts change, and the guts make them more lethal. Yeah. Fair enough. And so usually things that people consider 4.5 gen is the Strike Eagle and then the uh, the Super Hornet and the Growler. Those are the ones where they all have AESA radars. Um, and then we're starting to upgrade the electronic RWRs and, and whatnot. And the so radar you, warning receivers. Yeah. Okay. And so just from a, a sensor standpoint and then a aircraft overall mission computer standpoint, um, those have been upgraded to the point where you can correlate tracks and it's not just individual federated systems. There's a common picture now that the aircraft can display to you with the most advanced sensors that are out there. Gotcha. So when I think of Super Hornet, I think of initial operational capability or IOC probably being early 2000s, we'll say. Mm. Growlers a little bit after that, obviously. Now the F-15E, the Strike Eagle, when was its IOC? It was uh, late 80s. So it was probably one of the first four and a half gen fighters. Is that a true statement? Yeah, and I would I wouldn't say it was necessarily four point five then. Ah, okay. So that probably came along. I mean, it was um, at that point the outer mold line, the airframe remained the same. But Boeing um, or McDonnell Douglas went in and they kind of had a clean sheet design of what the inside should look like and 
probably about that same time that you were talking about with the, the Super Hornet, kind of early 2000s, is when we upgraded our mission computer, and then we started to add on the AESA in the uh, early 2011, 2012 time frame. Okay, fair. So it was almost contemporary to the, the yeah, Super Hornet. very contemporary. Okay, gotcha. Um, and for me, when you say mission computers being upgraded... I think of processing speeds faster, more RAM, if you will, some more memory, yeah. but also just the, the wiring. We actually switched over to fiber optics in the Super Hornet. Yeah. Did you do the same thing? We did, and particularly between now the AESA radar, to pass that much information and use it to its full capability, yeah, we had to upgrade all that wiring. Yeah, it is amazing the uh, when you go from a metal wire to fiber optics, the increase in bandwidth. Yeah. for lack of better. And that is definitely required for the new sensors. Yeah. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Awesome. So that's four and a half gen, then fifth gen. So what are some characteristics of that? Since you're the only person in this room that's flown an F-35. <laughs> So usually the, the biggest thing that most people think of for fifth gen is uh, stealth. Okay. The next biggest one is kind of sensor fusion, and that's where I was saying the Super Hornet and the Strike Eagle uh, start to build a common picture amongst all of the sensors, and uh, they kind of fuse those things together. Now, would those be just the onboard sensors, or could they be the offboard, like from your wingman too? Yeah, so data links do play into all that. And so um, that, again, can go into one common picture. It's much more inherent in 5th gen, uh, and there are fusion algorithms that take all of these different inputs and um, weigh them based on how good that was to give you one common solution. Now, would you say, so when you get, when we talk about sensor fusion, both onboard, excuse me, and offboard, I'm assuming there's a point where you're going to cry uncle. The pilot's going to say, dude, this is too much info. Yeah. Do you have ways to dial back your displays or do you just have to train yourself? Hey, I don't need to look at that right now. I need to look at this. How does that work? Yeah, there's a lot that goes into the training. We do have different layers so we can declutter things, first of all, oh. that we don't want. And then we have different layers where we can take out the basic data link information from all the other fourth gen fighters and we can only use fifth gen stuff. And so that will just start to clean up the picture up to the point where we're looking only at our F-35 and our wingman F-35 to reduce how much clutter is out there. So you could have a bunch of F-18s that are trying to help you in the fight and you just say, nah, you're only fourth gen. Yeah, Thanks. They're, they're not much help. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, my life's work. <laughs> or not. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, so we talked about the high-capacity integrated info system, so MIDs, right? 
So yep. multi-functional information distribution system. You guys used to use Saddle, right, for situational awareness data link. Yeah. Is that bygone? Are you guys all now trending on the, the mill standard? I think it's 6016, but it's basically MIDS. Yeah. You all use Link 16. Better yeah. Way to so Link 16, uh, we do have that in the F35. The F22 does not have that. Oh. The F22 has an F22 only data link. And F35 has an F35 only data link. No kidding. So, yeah. but the F35 you mentioned earlier can, can integrate off-board sensors, whether it be Hornets, 22s, whatever. The F22s only play with the F22s? They are expanding their capability. Okay. Um, they can receive Link 16, but they don't transmit Link 16. I see. So they're more passive participants in the Link 16. Yeah. So that, that's a great point. I had no idea. So besides building these fast things that are maneuverable and they've got fancy avionics inside for a fantastic pilot vehicle interface, you also have to think about interoperability, which is yeah. just what we're talking about. Of Hey, can the F-22 play with the F-35, which can play with the, the legacy systems, like an old, let's say, air quotes there, uh, F-15 versus a really old F-18. That's very interesting. Some, um, some good examples of the fifth generation fighters, obviously Scotia's current aircraft, the F-35, the F-22 also, the J-20 and the J-31 from China, which are in development. And I had heard rumors of a Sukhoi 57. I don't know if you have heard anything about that. Yep, I've seen some pictures. It's kind of um, neat looking. Yeah. So go check it out on Wikipedia or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and then uh, i got to give a shout-out, though, to the Hornets. So good old Boeing with the F-18 Block 30. So they're looking at conformal wing tanks, uh, a lot of advancements, and I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. All right, so we just stepped through generations one through five, and we gave basic characteristics and kind of an era, but is there really one textbook or one definite definition of each generation? No, it's more uh, just kind of what us as aviators talk about. It's kind of like uh, maybe breaking up baby boomers and Gen X ah, and yeah. millennials, and sometimes the overlap is squishy and certain people don't want to be called certain things. <laughs> I get that. I understand that. So yeah. basically there's no set uh, beginning year, end year. It's just an era or a generation like it's Yeah, and it's called. tied to, to capabilities. <laughs> Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And kind of design philosophies, too. And, and design, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. All right, so now we're going to get into the meat of it. So we stepped through those generations. So, Skosh, uh, I would imagine between your T-38 time, your F-15 time, your F-16 time, and your F-35, which was your most favorite fighter? So I, di I did love the Strike Eagle. It was fun to fly. Okay. Particularly just since I was operational in it, we were doing different type maneuvers. And so I just really enjoyed flying it in that environment. I've been flying the F-35 differently here doing kind of developmental tests. Um, so I've not gotten to exactly go out and rage in it. Um, <laughs> Fair. But the F-35 is, is a very capable jet with the latest software that we just finished. And if I had to go to combat, I would say I'd go in an F-35. Fair enough. And it would be single seat. And it would be single I mean, As opposed to your strike yep. angle. Yeah. So, okay, so when it comes to maneuverability or handling qualities, as we mentioned earlier, let's just compare fourth to fifth. So we'll compare the fourth generation F-15 to the fifth generation F-35. Yeah. Is it still, is it just an obvious no-brainer the F-35 is more maneuverable? It is not. I don't want to do my Raptor guys wrong here. <laughs> um, so there's certain other capabilities that uh, they will certainly say is what defines fifth gen. Some things you may have seen is like Super Cruise. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was one that was thrown out there. So that's the ability to go supersonic with your engines only in mill power, so not using afterburner. That's a big capability that increases the speed and range at which those aircraft can operate. And then the other one for them, particularly as it relates to this discussion, is uh, super maneuverable. Okay. So that's, again, just uh, you think of the F-22 and some of its design features as far as having uh, two engines and thrust vectoring. And you guys have seen it at air shows. It's certainly the most maneuverable airplane out there. In the U.S. inventory. As far as a fighter in the U.S. Okay. inventory. Okay. So the F-35, they made design decisions that they knew going in that they would not achieve that same level of maneuverability. But as we're complementing the Raptor, which is our air dominance fighter, we were designed for a different mission set. So more of the uh, suppression of enemy air defenses or destruction of enemy air defenses or just kind of long-range strike and interdiction. So we were designed more as that multi-role fighter as opposed to an air dominance fighter. Um, and so while the Raptor, as a fifth-gen, is certainly more maneuverable than a fourth-gen fighter, the F-35 is not. Um, Interesting. Most folks, I think, would just immediately defer to, hey, fifth-gen, more maneuverable, you know, and, and it depends because you got the 22 and you got the 35. So yeah. you can compare apples to apples that way yep. for maneuverability. So you, you mentioned a little about thrust vectoring. So does the F-35 have thrust vector? No, it does not. Okay, fair enough. When it comes to sheer power, so let's go back to the F-15, though. So you got yeah. your two Pratt & Whitney 220 engines. Yeah. And then you have your F-35 single engine. Yeah. So as a guy who's flown many, many hours, I'm going to say from my perspective in a twin-engine jet around the boat, Anytime I go single engine, it's an emergency. So when I see you take off in your sweet, sweet F-35, you're already in emergency status in my mind. Yeah, that's how I was in the beginning, too. Okay, yeah. So, so <laughs> but that's good. So you have made a shift in your mindset, right? Yeah. And how did that occur and when did it occur? So I did fly, we flew F-16s. Oh, thanks, Goose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we did fly F-16s at, at test pilot school. Um, and so there was a slight mindset shift there, but we didn't really think too much about it, maybe. Uh, certainly, you know, as we're not getting further than 30 or 50 miles away from the airfield, yeah. I'd never crossed the pond in a single-engine fighter at this point. <laughs> uh, so that is a different uh, mindset. But, you know, I did catch myself after my F-35 training um, as we kind of were up at the range, you know, and I'm, I'm not in immediate gliding distance of something, you know, my first handful of flights, I was thinking about it, but, um, I mean, it really disappeared soon after that. Um, Good. this engine is really robust and capable and, uh, it is certainly smarter than any of us are as far as running itself, managing itself, dealing with any malfunctions. It can diagnose those, let you know. Uh, before things go really bad and uh, kind of let you know when it's time to start going home. Nice. So the Super Hornet has the FADEC, Full Authority Digital Engine Control. And that was a great in that uh, the computer, very smart, governs the engine, and the pilot or the air crew, they're voting members. They don't have direct control over the engines, which can be good and bad. There were a couple times for a couple years where there was a sensor within the FADEC system, we'll call it, or suite of sensors, that was erroneous. And I forget, unfortunately, this time, I think it was corrosion, and it would lead to false indications. Then the computer would say, oh, the engine is in this status. We need to shut it down. So a friend of mine was out in a Super Hornet during basic fighter maneuvers, and he's inverted slow, and the computer decides to shut off the engine on him. 
So ever since I heard that story, I didn't fully invest myself in the Fadec. I had to use it. That's what they gave me. So I did. Do you have any reservations about the Fadec? Because yours is much more mature than the Super Hornets is, to my knowledge. Yeah, ours is much more mature, and we actually have two Fadex on oh. our on our engine. So there's redundancy built in, and they're comparing each other all the time. And so I don't have that same sense, maybe. Okay. Because um, it, it is redundant. And we don't even have, you know, a lot of the F-16 engines, the GE, or even the Pratt engines, they could have a mode where you could remove the Fadex and get basic functionality. We don't even have that, so it's... So there's no uh, override if you... So there's no the F-35 override. cockpit is all computers. I'm not mechanically linked to the engine. It is no kidding a switch to turn on the engine. And I put the switch from off to run, and then my engine turns on. Starts itself completely. No kidding. So a traditional engine startup sequence for me is going to be some kind of auxiliary power unit that's going to spin the core of the big engine. The core has to reach a certain RPM. There are spark plugs, igniters, if you will, that'll fire. And then at a certain temperature and RPM, I'm going to introduce fuel now the combustion cycle starts, suck, squeeze, bang, blow, and off you go with the jet engine. So you're telling me you don't have to do any of that. You're, and what our audience can't see is that you are you have a little mini lever yeah. that's kind of got a, a locked position to it, and you just kind of pick it up over the detent and put it in on or go or something. And yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So do you, do you even have to look at the engine temperature when you start? Yeah, we've got it up. Again, um, it is managing itself from the beginning. So we've got the same kind of auxiliary power unit that spins up, but we don't we don't engage the motor. And then at a certain RPM, then we do this thing. Uh, we literally turn on the auxiliary power unit. Once that's up and running, then we flip the switch and the Fadex do the rest. Wow, dude! I mean that that is fantastic. We mentioned earlier sensor fusion. We talked about avionics. The pilot vehicle or air crew vehicle interface if you're a backseater would you say that it's just supremely more elegant in the f-35 than the f-15 or is it kind of the same or how does that work it is more elegant in some ways and then um in other ways it is just different than how that 15 did it so not better worse just different and you just have to train your mind to do it the new way one of the main benefits of the f-35 is you've got this 8 by 20 inch glass display in front of you um, as opposed to a four by four inch multifunction display and so there's just a lot more real estate and a lot more graphics power to throw up different symbology it's similar in the sense that we're all on a god's eye view picture so we're Mm. jet centered in the in the middle of this display and then um, it's just that now i get the ability to have better symbology that maybe tells me more than just a triangle or whatever it is. So you guys incorporate color discriminators, I'm assuming? Yep. So we've got color, shapes, solid, dashed. Will you have size differentiation too, like a little airplane versus a big airplane? Not so much for that, but we do for kind of our ground targets. And then any kind of a new guy that mm-hmm. pops up um, will initially come up and he'll change size to let you know that it's something new is there. It kind of gets your attention amongst the, yeah. not clutter, but the other stuff. Yeah. That makes sense. So it's pretty intuitive. I would call it the human factors, if you will, of your interface with the displays. Can you, almost like Windows on a computer, can you put the a certain type of display in the upper left-hand corner, or you can put it in the right-hand corner? Is it kind of selectable? It is, yeah. So the, the 8 by 20 display, so that's 8 inches tall, 20 inches across, and then each of those 
is broken up into to four portals. Hmm. And so you, you can make something five inches wide, and you can have four different pictures that way. Or you can make uh, one of those kind of half-year displays, so it can be 10 inches wide um, and 8 inches tall, and then you've got the other two to put on the other side. Uh, then we can also put little blocks down at the, the bottom of that, so we can have a, a 2 by 2 inch kind of separate display on the bottom of those. Hmm. And that is all programmable. You can put whatever you want in, uh, in each of those kind of windows, if you will. Now, is there some kind of standardization? So this would be not technology, but more doctrine. Like, hey, if you're in the squadron, you're going to put this display in this corner. Yeah, so the units will standardize that. For different mission sets, they'll have a recommendation, and then guys will they'll teach to that, and then they'll train to that, and that's optimized. But more so in the F-35, you do have the ability to eventually get to some pilot preference as far as where you like your screens. Nice. So with uh, now I'm thinking about emergency procedures. So in all the platforms that I flew, you had to memorize verbatim a bunch of procedures if you have a casualty of some sort, engine fire, radar overheat, whatever. So we had, we'd have ground tests where you had to write out exactly what the step was and what the procedure was. Now, a long time ago in the F-18A, they used to have those procedures actually up on microfiche. So the guys didn't need to memorize anything. They could dial in to it as opposed to having a checklist, which is a printed on paper, kept in a, one of our pockets when we pull it out. When it comes to the F-35, do you have to memorize any emergency procedures? Or are they displayed when a, a system failure comes up? So we do still have to go off the checklist. So the F-22, they uh, made a integrated caution and warning capability within the airplane. And so the airplane knows everything that's going on with the sensors, and it will tell you kind of exactly what's going on. And in the F-22, one of the menus that they can bring up is their caution and warning menu, and the jet will, it kind of has the tree in there for them. So they're still kind of, like you're saying with the microfiche, they're bringing up the checklist on the screen, and they're able to, to work through that. With the best information, they're not guessing. The airplane kind of tells them real-time what it is assessing is wrong. We have a a similar capability. We just have not used it in the F-35. So we have the integrated caution and warning system that will tell us um, in pretty good detail what exactly is going on with our airplane. But we don't have the checklist up there on the screen. We have to pull out the pocket checklist Okay. And, uh, and then reference it from there. Which is what we're used to. So yeah. when it comes to weapons, all right, so the F-35, I think back to fourth generation F-14 where you had the AUG-9 radar and the AIM-54, I think it is, Phoenix missile. Yeah. And that whole aircraft was built around that air-to-air intercept system. Yeah. Is, the, is there one single weapon that is pivotal to the design of the F-35? No. We kind of uh, took what the existing weapons were, so... Um, you know, our main capability is the AIM-120 AMRAAM air-to-air missile. And then we've added, with the latest version of software, we added the AIM-9X as well. And then for air-to-ground weapons, initially, the initial capability is like the standard laser-guided bomb GBU-12. Um, we've got the GBU-31 GPS-guided joint direct attack munition. And then the small diameter bomb. So that, that was kind of the initial capability. And so that's kind of the next phase that we're going to start doing in developmental test is uh, with the next block of software is going to start bringing some 
additional uh, weapons capabilities with small diameter bomb two, and then the laser J dam. But yeah, there's no there's no special weapons. Okay, so it's that, more. Uh, this was built around. Okay, so if you had to think of a design statement, it would probably be designed to complement the F twenty two, like you said earlier, as opposed to yeah. being developed around a weapon. Yeah. Okay, so now mids. We talked a little about interoperability. We mentioned the F twenty two kind of plays by itself. They're throwing money at it to make it play well with others in the sandbox. The F-35, though, you said, I think does a better job of interoperability when it comes to information distribution. Yeah. So the F-35's got our own data link that is only talking to F-35s. We can talk to our four-ship formation, and then we can also talk to other F-35 formations. And then we also participate in the Link-16 that we talked about earlier, so kind of the... uh, the follow-on to the Saddle data link network, which is all of the kind of fourth-gen platforms, the F-15, F-16, F-18, are all on the Link-16 network. Stealth. All aspects stealth. How good is yours versus the F-15, as we said earlier? So the F-15 is not stealthy at all, especially the Strike Eagle. <laughs> it's but a, it's so awesome. It's a barn door. <laughs> but. So the F-15, when you strap on your 12 500-pound Mark 82s, the radar cross-section goes out the window, right? It's just yeah. huge. Now, when you strap on air-to-ground stores on the F-35, is the same true? Um, it is, yeah. So we've got internal weapons base, uh, same as F-22. And so that's how we maintain our stealth capability when we are carrying the, the ordnance, is that's all carried internally. After you know the first bit of a war, when we're not as concerned about stealth and we want to carry more weapons... Um, we've got external hardpoints that we can load up our air-to-ground munitions on. And then at that point, we're not stealth either. And so we just use that when we don't need to be stealth. That makes sense. So the configuration will be dictated by whether the environment is permissive or not, i.e. how many threats you have out there. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. Strictly on an unclassified level, when you talk about stealth, uh, you think about geometry, you think about RAM, the absor- what, what are some design factors for stealth that, that are different from the F-15 or 22 and the F-35? Yeah, there's a lot of um, shaping that goes into it, materials as far as the radar absorbing materials or the coatings. Those are probably the main ones. And so, like we were talking about with the maneuverability, the aircraft is designed more for stealth than for aerodynamics. And so there's some trade-offs that occur when you do that. A stealthy aircraft design is not necessarily the uh, the best for aerodynamics. And so uh, some of that can be overcome with the new digital flight controls. They can uh, cover up a lot of those design trade-offs that you had to make. Otherwise, like we were talking about, it's the F-35 specifically is going to complement an F-22. And so that was just a, uh, a design trade-off that was accepted to maximize the stealth capability and take a hit for some maneuverability. Okay, fair. And I tend to think back to the use case of the F-117, right? Yeah. A lot of stealth involved, aerodynamics, eh, yeah, not yeah. so hot, and stability not so hot, I think. And they needed computers they did. to fly the thing. So that thing actually couldn't get airborne until they had developed a certain speed processor to maintain the handling for that aircraft. And finally, U-Class integration. So I'm thinking of unmanned combat aerial vehicles, or UCAV, let's say in this case. Is there any talk of discussion testing on U and F-35 commanding a bunch of drones? Um, not that I've heard, no. That's not something that, that we've looked at even on the, on the DT side. We're certainly looking at ways to bring in kind of unmanned assets and be able to control them. 
But yeah, we've not started looking at that at all yet. Okay, so the movie Stealth is still just that, science fiction. Straight up, yep. Fair enough. So, parting shots, fourth gen, fifth gen. If you had to pick one, it would be... It would be... your platforms. It would be the F-35. Yep. Awesome. Just like you said earlier, yep, still going to be the F-35. Just want to double check you on that. Yep. Okay, and we have some final and standard questions that we always ask. Nice. So, what does the future hold for you? So I'll be uh, teaching at Test Pilot School here for another year or so, and then um, I'll be going, hopefully at that point, off to a uh, director of operations job, and then off to a uh, a squadron command job soon after that. Very nice. So a director of operations is the second in command, right? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. And then finally, our favorite question is, Skos, how in the world did you get your call sign? All right, so it's an acronym. It stands for... uh, well, can you say this in front? Is this a PG comment or this is PG? <laughs> yep. I'll cut it. You so can... I'll give you I'll give you the story. So, okay. uh, Skosh is a brevity code word that will call out whenever we've shot all of our active missiles to let the flight lead know that we don't have that capability anymore. So, for me, my story is uh, I was a young wingman, so I'd only been in the squadron for three or four months. And we went from England down to Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. And I got to shoot an AIM-9 Sidewinder, but uh, kind of an earlier version. And uh, I uh, was out there with another wingman. So it was me and another dude who'd been in the squadron for like three or four months, alone and unafraid out there, kind of raging. (laughs) And we're shooting at a target drone that uh, is popping off a whole bunch of flares. And uh, we're just shooting our old M9 at this guy to get some... Uh, check in a box. Check in a box. Ball, yeah. Yep. And so, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm from San Antonio. So I shoot this missile, which is awesome. Uh, it's kind of like a bottle rocket, zips off. Mm-hmm. Like in Top Gun, you can see it doing the, the whole snake twirling um, effect. And uh, I may or may not have let out uh, Yeehaw. <laughs> And, the uh, cowboy comes out. The cowboy comes out. And so Skosh stands for Screaming Killer of Simulated Hostile. Nice. Yeah. Skosh is an acronym, so kind of double entendre. You double got the, entendre. Hey, I'm, I'm missing a bunch of radar missiles yeah. and for SA to the Shot flight all the missiles, or, and, or <laughs> and I'm also screaming. Bravo. Awesome. Well done, sir. Well done. Anyway, well, I'll tell you what, Skosh, it has been a fantastic time. Thanks for coming on the show. So, Skosh, we have one thing that we always say at the end of every episode. Let's get out of here. Nice. Good deal, dude. All right, Sunshine. I hereby give you a stamp of approval. You are safe for solo on interviews for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Jello. I'm a real (laughs) boy. Nicely done. I'll get you a certificate. It'll come in the mail. Uh, (laughs) No, very nicely done. Sounds like you guys had some fun there. And that was, I tell you, this guy's got some amazing experience, and he's got quite a bright future ahead of him. Absolutely, without cool. a doubt. Now, I do have to bust you on one thing, though. And that was? Well, when you said all aspect weapons, you talked about shooting the AIM-9X over your shoulder. And that's true, but I don't think that's what they mean here. Now, if you go back far enough, like in Vietnam, to shoot a sidewinder, you had to be essentially looking up your target's tailpipe, or at least fairly close to it. And in the case of the sidewinder, anyway, that was the only way you could employ it. Right. These days, including with radar missiles, obviously, you can shoot 
that target, whether he's flying exactly away from you or flying exactly towards you or flying in the beam 90 degrees from you. And I think that's what they meant. So you're saying target aspect as opposed to yes. aspect. At least uh-huh. in the context that you used it. But sure. okay. to be fair, there is some, and we dare not get into too much here, but there is some over the shoulder and other, shall we say, new ways, I'll just leave it at that, of employing weapons. Indeed. Okay. Well, let's, let's get away from that slippery slope. And uh, no, other than that, I, I thought that was a really awesome discussion. Yeah. So anyway, nice job, dude. And uh, you have another interview waiting, don't you? I do. We're going to talk with a Chris Murdoch-Putre about system configuration sets, which is basically the iOS of the F-18, so the, the Hornet operating system. Do I have to get my pocket protector for this Mac, one? Mac, yeah, there's going to be a... If, <laughs> and I'll tell you what, what I sincerely will appreciate via Facebook or any other medium is candid feedback from the listeners. So if, sure. if we're geeking out too much and we're now talking like dolphin clicks or something and it's not making any sense, <laughs> let me know and we can dial it back and try to bring it back to the real world. Well, maybe what we'll do is we'll pick one episode a month, maybe the second or third one, and dedicate that to some of this more technical stuff. Some people probably do enjoy it and it helps to explain different matters that are out there, whether it's software-wise or flight controls or whatever. And on that note, you and I are looking for an opportunity soon to do another Facebook Live type event where we do a presentation on some aerodynamics. Yeah, I thought we'd kind of geek out and uh, hopefully teach you guys how to use the term like longitudinal static stability correctly. Use it at the dinner table, maybe uh, wow your kids or uh, wow a lady you're looking at. All right. Well, that sounds like fun, and I'll probably learn something from that as well. In addition to that, we're looking to, after much ballyhoo about it, start our aircraft series soon. We're going to begin that with the FA-18, of course. Natural choice. And then maybe we'll do the S-3 secondly, since you flew that one. The absolutely. You can put that guy on. On the defensive, not really. <laughs> and then from there, it will just be, I wish I could say we're going to start with the A1 and end with the <laughs> Z, whatever. Yeah. But in reality, it will be whoever we can get. I do have a friend locally who flew A7s, so we'll grab him. Fantastic. And I have a secret connection who is going to talk about the SR-71 Ooh. and the U-2 and a few others. I've got some Air Force and Marine guys ready to talk about the Super Stallion and the A-10. So this will be a good series. I'm looking forward to it. And it won't just be aircraft series. Once in a while, we'll take a pause and we'll interject some technology stuff that you might be doing or whatever else we need to talk about, like another hint, the Blue Angels. Ooh, we got a blue scheduled, huh? Possibly two. So that's all I will say about that. We'll try to get that ready for their season opener in mid-March down in El Centro. All right. Well, I think that will about do it. I want to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Well, Sunshine, what do you got for parting shots, buddy? Thanks a lot for letting me play. Uh, I'll tighten up my comm on target aspect, <laughs> and I sure enjoyed it. I hope you guys did too. Once again, sincerely appreciate uh, listener feedback, and if we're geeking out too much, we need to bring it back to centerline, let us know. Sure thing. And on that note, there was a lot of new acronyms I forgot to mention that will uh, find their way to our glossary tab as always. But yeah, no, that, I thought you did a great job, and we'll definitely let you keep doing it as much as you want to, as your work permits. And other than that, I think we can wrap it up, and we'll see you all next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. See ya!
Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. You want to say let's get out of here? You already did. On the interview. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. Cool. Okay. But I could play this little bit at no, the no. end. Oh, whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.